Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and a planet. My name is Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and today we're going to talk about nitrogen fixation and a new way to approach this issue. We know that the many acres of farmland require nitrogen in order to be able to be ultimately productive or optimally productive. And there's been many ways that this has been done in the past, some that have sustainability issues. So the Join Bio Company has taken on a new way to try to do this. And today we're speaking with Michael Milley. Dr. Michael Milley is the CEO of Join Bio, and he joins us here today from California. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Milley. Hi, Kevin. Thanks very much, and it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, it's really neat to have this particular topic because we've had other podcasts recently about engineering of microbes to do work that um, that needs to be done. Uh, recently, episode 201 covered uh, a probiotic that was engineered to alleviate the problems with hangovers. So this is kind of a, a little bit on the other end of the spectrum, but still has some commonalities. But it all starts with nitrogen. And and I always joke about uh, why do we have why do we need to have nitrogen fixation? Is it broken? You know, um, <laughs> but right, well, let's talk about nitrogen for a minute. That really it's been credited with increasing production and really maximizing yields on the farm. And uh, how is nitrogen currently fixed? So the I think in in the agricultural practices of today, and particularly with the the broad acre crops um, like corn and wheat. So the, the broad acre cereal crops, they're essentially a hundred percent dependent on, um, on the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that's produced by a, a process called the Haber-Bosch reaction. Um, and so the, the synthetic fertilizer itself is, <laughs> has different formulations, different ways to apply it. But essentially, the, uh, the chemical process that produces it um, uses a enzymatic reaction and high temperatures and a pretty involved process to actually take nitrogen out of the air and convert it into a synthetic form that can be applied to the soil and taken up by the plants. Okay, so we're using Haber-Bosch and it works pretty well. It's got a lot of uh, good things to its credit. But if you're just coming up with microbial ways to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere, really, aren't you just doing what legumes already do? I mean, why is this a big um, step forward? So I think it's uh, it's actually a, a really good point. The in for um, crops like soybeans and peanuts, they've actually evolved with a microbe associated with them in their root nodules that actually does fix nitrogen and provide nitrogen to the soybean or to the peanut. The challenge with the cereal crops like corn and wheat, uh, canola, and some of the, you know, the grain cereal crops is they haven't done that. They have not evolved and they have no microbes associated with them that fix nitrogen. So where a soybean plant can depend on and uh, have the nitrogen provided to it by these microbes that are in these root nodules, um, the corn and the, the wheat plant don't have that advantage. And so they become 100% dependent on the chemical, synthetic chemical fertilizers that the farmer or the grower has to apply. And so since the, since the Haber-Bosch reaction came about back in around 1910, 1909, 1910, um, it really effectively transformed agriculture and, and really almost single-handedly helped answer the question of how are we going to feed a growing population? 
And uh, if you look at corn production and wheat production and, and overall food production as a result of synthetic fertilizers, you know, it's, it's arguably they're responsible for more people being alive today than, than any other invention. So it's, it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not a reaction and it's not a product that you want to vilify. And at the same time, um, it has become uh, environment. It has issues with both the production, the greenhouse gas emissions with the production of the synthetic fertilizer, and also environmental consequences from the runoff and effect of putting so much of this out there every year to get the high productivities that we've come to need and expect from the cereal crops. So, uh, you know, it would be in the perfect world. You'd love to be able to. Um, develop microbes that are just as effective uh, for the corn as the microbes are that support the soybeans. That's really the objective. But from our view, if, if you wait for evolution to do that, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, these kind of evolutionary changes come with stress and pressure. As long as that corn plant continues to get all the fertilizer or all the nitrogen it needs from our synthetic fertilizer, it's never going to evolve the the microbes. And so our approach is to come in and say, look, we probably aren't going to, we're not going to find the natural microbe out there that can do this. But we believe with the advances and the technologies and synthetic biology that are available to us today, we think we can actually engineer or design microbes that can do this, maybe not as effectively as it is with soy, but if we can just do it so that 50% of the synthetic fertilizer, you can reduce it by that amount. Um, we think that that's transformational to today's practices and to improving the sustainability of, of the of the fertilizer and the and the crops and the productivity going forward. Yeah, you could imagine that would have huge effects in the developing world. I mean, places where you can't drag a tank of you know ammonia or urea or whatever, that would be really breakthrough for them. It would, and I think, and, and again, you can imagine, you can realize that the increase in productivity or the the improvement that you get in the crop yield in places like sub-Saharan Africa, it's going to be even more dramatic. I mean, we've arguably optimized things with both our seeds and the seed and germplasm that we use for corn and wheat, as well as with the agricultural practices, we've really optimized those in the U.S. to extremely high levels of, of yield and productivity um, that really aren't seen anywhere else in the world. And so if we can come up with, you know, one of the ideas or benefits we think that would make this these microbes transformational is that exactly what you said, they could be applied in other geographies and maybe even have a bigger impact based on how low the baseline is today for their current productivity. Cause they, as you said, they don't have access to these, um, to these types of fertilizers that are available in the U S and they, and they also don't have access to the, the machinery and the equipment that applies it um, so effectively. Um, back in our episode 154, we spoke with Dr. Alan Bennett from University of California, Davis, and he discussed these land races of Mexican corn that secreted a, had aerial roots that secreted a mucilage that would support specific bacteria that did nitrogen fixation. Is your technology based on similar microbes or ones that are naturally found? It's, um, so the, the, the short answer is, uh, no, not, not initially. Um, we actually have, uh, we actually have, have talked quite a bit with, uh, um, with the, uh, the folks who did that work at UC Davis and we are going to, we're trying to set up a collaboration, um, with them to, um, to see if we can't take a look at some of those microbes and see if they might be an interesting, uh, what we would call a, a chassis or host microbe that we can work with. But our approach is, is really a little different, and that is that we, we, we know there are microbes out there that have the machinery, if you will, or the, or the payload to actually fix the nitrogen. We think one of the keys is we have to put that machinery into a host or chassis microbe that colonizes the plant uh, to a relatively high degree. So you have both a you have both a delivery challenge. So how, how do you, you get enough of these microbes and how do you get enough of the payload, if you will, or the, the machinery? 
to the plant? And then how do you make sure that that, that machinery or that payload uh, is effectively at a reasonably high rate, um, providing the nitrogen or or other things uh, that the plant needs? And it it really comes back to uh, an area that is is under uh, is really exciting these days and just sort of exploding, and that is what we call the microbiome. And this, not just for plants and a plant microbiome, but also animals and, and human health, there's a growing understanding of how critical and how integral microbes are to the health uh, of, of all the, of all species. And, and plants are no exception. The, the interaction and relationship between microbes and plants is, is well-documented. And, but at the same time, I think we're really at just the early stages of understanding the complexity and how much these, how much that microbe and the plant are, are dependent on each other. And so our hope is to, our, our initial search is to find these host or chassis microbes that do have special associations with the plant, colonize that plant very effectively. And then also at the same time, these would be microbes that uh, we can engineer. They have their what we would call tractable, or they they're easily engineered. And there we can put the payload or the machinery <clears throat> into these chassis or host microbes that then will associate with the the corn or the wheat plant that we want. And with that association, fix the nitrogen and have have the relationship in place to transfer it. Okay, this makes a lot of sense to me because you're really just taking something that's already resident and giving it new capacity that is something that's beneficial to the plant. But if you're talking about genetic engineering or synthetic biology, isn't this still something that is a, you know, from the public side, something that they're a little bit uncomfortable with, especially as it's used on food crops? Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a given. And I, um, I think it's one of the, you know, I think joint bio, you know, one of the interesting things with joint bio is we're, we're actually a joint venture. Um, between Bayer and Ginkgo BioWorks. So we, we married up, if you will, um, a premier leader in the synthetic biology space and Ginkgo BioWorks with a leader in crop protection, which was Bayer, and a leader in microbial uh, solutions and, and microbial R&D. Put those two together to form JOIN to look specifically at this area, which is, you know, can you engineer microbes uh, and if, you know, can you engineer them to perform at unprecedented levels, at levels that you don't see in a natural microbe? Um, and I think one, you know, we have scientific hurdles that we talk about and, and we work on all the time. But to your point, we're all, we also have regulatory and what we would call societal acceptance hurdles. Um, and it's not a given. I mean, if you you look back at the the reaction and, and the emotional discussions around engineering plants um, and the upcoming discussions that are going to happen as the CRISPR-Cas technology starts to expand into engineering uh, different aspects of human health and stuff. You're going to have people that are going to be uncomfortable with that, that are going to challenge that. Um, and I think the the key is to, to not, is to be aware that those challenges are out there. And, and we think, we really think the key to overcoming that uh, comes in two ways. One is transparency from the beginning and honesty and transparency about what you're doing and being you know clear about it. But I think the second piece of it is uh, you have to provide a benefit that's fully appreciated by people. Um, it can't just be that you give growers another 2% yield. That, that's not going to work, and particularly when you're talking about their food supply. So I think you're going to need a benefit um, like um, rescuing a crop. So we, we, we talked with papayas uh, in Hawaii where a, a genetic mutation was able to rescue the papaya population, um, even though Hawaii is uh, very anti-GMO. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint and such, um, almost all the, all the papayas there now are are in fact GMO, and so they <laughs> they'll say we don't like GMOs except for papayas. And I think you, it's a, essentially you have to rescue a crop. I think the same thing is happening now with chestnuts. Ninety nine percent of the chestnuts are 
are dying from a disease that can be fixed if there's a, a genetic uh, uh, insert there in the plant. And, and that's going to happen because you have to, so you, if you can rescue something, um, if you can provide a benefit that uh, people truly appreciate or people truly value, then I think their willingness to at least listen and give it a chance and take the time to um, allow you to convince them that it is safe and it is uh, it is environmentally safe. It is, you know, human safe. I think you have a, a very different discussion um, when that benefit is is significant. Yeah, maybe your first target needs to be the home gardener. I mean, I know how much um, how much it matters to especially with some crops. I mean, you see, you know, I grow papayas at my place and I can see when they're starting to really have nitrogen deficiency. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then you have to go get some, you know, some litter from the barn or something like that to put on there to, or, you know, or a fixed nitrogen fertilizer um, to remedy that. And and that would be a good way to turn things around pretty easily, it would seem. Some, some kind of small scale thing as well as a large scale application. Yeah, it's a good idea. I still um, think the large scale, I mean, if you, when we look at the, the big problem, if you will, I mean, anybody, as I understand it, who lives down on the Gulf Coast and down there um, have seen the algae blooms and have seen the, the results of the, the large amount of, of nitrogen runoff that's come down, especially with the, um, with the floods and things that have happened. And so I think if you could when you address problems like that, that are very real to everybody. Uh, and if you, if you bring, you know, I, I think the other given in this is I think people understand now that we're not going to feed a growing population for the next 30 or 40 years at the rate that things are going. If agriculture stays where it is, it's going to have to innovate. It's going to have to change and it's going to have to come with innovative solutions that, not only solve the problem, but also do it in a way that is uh, a benefit or, or at least does no harm to the environment. Um, and the environment being, you know, not just the soil or the water, but I think, you know, the you know, bees and, and other beneficial insects and these type of things. You really have to, you, you've really got to address a lot of concerns today uh, because of the complexity of, of, of the, uh, of the environment that you're putting it out in. And so all of these things, uh, you, you're going to have to come back and show the benefit uh, at a scale like that. And I think if you do, if we truly can come with a solution that reduces nitrogen applications by 50% and results in the same yield, that's that's pr- that's transformational. Uh, it doesn't replace 100% of it. And, and frankly, we don't think it will. We, we, we Think of this more as a, as a Prius, and uh, we're, we're not going to get all the way to a, a full electric car. But if, if we can, uh, if we can get fifty percent of the way there, um, that's a that's going to be a significant uh, benefit to the agricultural community over the next couple decades as we try to as we continue to strive for higher and higher yields. That's a really good point. Um, it really is a question of social license, right? Like, do do consumers allow us to implement technology? But let me be the devil's advocate for a second. If you're fixing nitrogen, and so you're you're making nitrogen for the plant, so whether you're fixing it on site, in site, you know, in that spot, or you're applying it, what's the difference? It's still nitrogen in the soil. I think it's a. If you go back to the microbiome idea, you've got the the relationship there between that microbe and the plant that's symbiotic and, and, and is established. And if that nitrogen is actually getting fixed, if you will, by the microbe and transferred to the plant, then you don't have these large amounts that are being put out into the soil like you do with the current synthetic fertilizer applications. And I, I think the other nuance of this that, that I don't think a lot of people appreciate is that the reason they put so much nitrogen fertilizer out there is that if you look at the growing cycle of a of a corn plant, it needs fifty. It, it takes up about 90 percent of that nitrogen in the in the second half of its life cycle. So, yes, you put you put the fertilizer out there at the beginning when the plants are small and everything, and you can actually fertilize it in, a, in an effective way with the machinery. But the need for that nitrogen doesn't come 
for a month, you know, for six, eight weeks later during that second half of its of its life cycle. That's when it really needs it. So one of the big advantages we think if we can make this work is that those microbes, are, they're going to associate with the plant and they'll be there to deliver that nitrogen in the mid to late season period when it's most needed as opposed to having to put excessive amounts on at the beginning in the hopes that there's enough there in that mid to late season period. And I think that's part of why the applications are so high. Now, again, in fairness, growers have worked, this is a big issue for growers and they're highly aware of it. They've adopted all kinds of creative uh, practices to try to address this. But there's only so much there's, there's only so much they can do, and I think if we can come along and help by reducing just the, the amount that they have to put in there by 50 percent, and have that nitrogen be there uh, for the plant at mid to late season, that's a big deal. Oh, that sounds great. So we're speaking with Dr. Michael Milley. He's the CEO of Join Bio, and we're talking about basically plant probiotics, adding to the plant microbiome a genetically engineered microbes that can fix nitrogen. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. I just hate going to the store. All of these labels, free-range, GMO-free, certified Chernobyl radiation-safe. It's so confusing, especially in the area of food technology. Well, hi, lady shopper. I couldn't help but overhear that you were showing signs of distress about food and farming. Yes, strange guy, I don't know. I'm concerned. I don't want biotechnology, synthetic biology, or precision agriculture in my food. Mother Nature gave it all the precision I need. Wow, you seem indeed lost and confused. Why do you feel this way? Well, for years, I've listened to these luminaries, Food Babe, Gwyneth Paltrow, and David Avocado Wolf. But now I wonder, are they for real? Do I need certified GMO-free salt? Does salt even have genetics to modify, random stranger? If only there was a concise book that explained it all with reputable science that I, a person without a science degree, will totally understand. Wait, I need to introduce you to Food 5.0. Food 5.0? Is that... is that gluten-free? Well, sort of. See, Food 5.0 is a book called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, a new book by Robert Syke. Sounds interesting, random science man. Tell me more. Well, the book is a substantial science-based book, looking at modern farming. It's written for everyone the average person that has concerns or just wants to know more about food or farm technology. From genes in the field to sensors on the farm, it's really a great book. I have a copy right here. Indeed, this looks like a comprehensive work that may challenge my assumptions and answer so many questions. Thank you, random grocery store stranger! No, thank you for challenging your own pitifully misplaced beliefs. And reach out to Rob or even the Talking Biotech podcast host if you have any questions. Will do. Imagine, there's something other than coffee at the grocery store that will make me feel smarter. Find Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, on Amazon or from wherever you can buy books, if there are such places anymore. And hurry before food activists buy them all and burn them. This is a needed piece of work that has a place in helping people understand what's on their plate and how it got there. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Milley. He's the CEO of Join Bio in Woodland, California. And we're speaking about their efforts to construct microbes that help fix nitrogen that can be used in situ. So at the area of the plant roots, part of the plant microbiome to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and limit the amount of uh nitrogen that needs to be applied exogenously and thinking about all the good environmental potential impacts of that. Plus, you don't have to ship nitrogen across the country to, to make it happen. So um, and maybe let's get to the nuts and bolts of this a little bit. Um, you have microbes that are a good chassis, as you say, like they, they have the association with the plant. What kind of genetic changes need to be done in order to make them able to fix nitrogen and deliver it? 
So I think it's a, it's a great question. I think the, and there's sort of two basic approaches that, that we think you can take. One is um, if, you find a, uh, if you find a chassis that is particularly effective at associating with not just the roots, but, but the entire um, corn plant as it grows. And, and if, you have the, if you, it has the characteristics that you need to uh, apply it as a seed treatment, um, then that, that chassis we would, be, we would work on to engineer or program in the machinery or, or the genes uh, necessary to fix the nitrogen. So you essentially take the, the nitrogen fixing um, genetics and engineer those into what we would call sort of a super chassis. The other approach you could take is there are microbes out there that already fix nitrogen. And we believe that there are, uh, there are certain things we can do with that microbe to make it a better chassis, that to make it, there's things we can engineer it so that it potentially associates better with the, uh, with the plant and in a sense becomes a better chassis for us. And that, that's the opposite approach to have the machinery already in there and focus on optimizing it as a chassis or find a super chassis and then insert or engineer in the, uh, the, the genes that you need to actually fix and transfer the nitrogen to the plant. And so we're at this point, because it, you know, this is, this is new territory and uh, <laughs> that we're, we're looking at, we're sort we're, we're at this point, we're, we're looking at e either um, either approach at this point and, and trying to see which one is going to be the most effective. Well, you know, if we want to engineer a plant to, let's just say, be resistant to caterpillars, we can engineer a microbial BT gene or, you know, like a herbicide resistance, the uh, bacterial form of the EPSPS gene. So we can, we do this all the time uh, or, you know, golden rice, you know, for instance, using mm -hmm. a bacterial um carotenoid synthesis why not just engineer the plant directly and eliminate the microbe altogether so people that's actually people have looked at that and there are um there's a number of technical reasons why the um the genetics and the genes associated with nitrogen fixation um from an energy standpoint getting putting those into the plant and supporting it um, there are people trying and then have looked at it, but when you go through and look at the kinetics of it and you go through and look at it, um, the conclusion that a lot of folks have, have come up with is that it's really not feasible. And it, and if it is, it, it's a long way out. It's still, a, 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 a not just a moon shot, but, uh, you know, maybe a, a Mars shot or something. So it's a, it's, a diff it's definitely it's definitely theoretically possible, but on a practical level, has proven to be uh, very difficult. But the other the other aspect of that, Kevin, is that if you think about it, if you engineer something like that into a plant, you have to do it again and again and again with every crop. Um, and so you've got this, you've got this long iterative process. It's, it's extremely expensive, extremely time consuming. I think the, the average, uh, engineered, uh, seed that's out there today, it was, you know, is anywhere from 10 to 12 years and, and several hundred million dollars to bring it to market and get the full registrations and stuff. Um, and then what you've done is you've solved it for this particular crop. If we can do this, <coughs> excuse me, if we can do this with a microbe, then you have the ability to use that across a multitude of crops. And so the speed to market and the immediate impact that you would have would be much higher. Oh, that's a great answer because you can think of a lot of crops that benefit from nitrogen that nobody would ever invest in engineering. And you know, a huge number, especially small niche crops that you know maybe need, need excessive nitrogen because they are such... Um, I don't know a good word. They're they're not a they're they're generally unfit to grow in our soils and things from uh, you know air, and so that would be a great that's a great example. I guess the other important question on this that really is a more of a devil's advocate question is these microbiomes that you speak of um, tend to be rather sensitive places and they're e very um, known ecologies of 
specific microbes that associate with plants. And so what happens when you put in something that has some extra fortification or something that is, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a chassis that normally isn't there? How much does that matter that it disturbs the natural uh, biota of that environment? Um, I, I think the honest answer at this point is is we, uh, we're we not going to be 100% sure until we actually do it. And uh, I think you have to... Um, you have to run the you have to run the experiments. You have to, to do the analysis. You have to look at that. Um, we've done people have done a lot of work with microbes, natural microbes as products, and, and in doing that, <coughs> have looked at the environment uh, and and the changes that take place. And we've really seen we haven't seen that as a problem to date with natural microbes. And so um, we think that the the chass like the chassis that we're going to be working with. You know these these start as as natural microbes themselves, and they're they're part of that that uh, that natural environment around the plant. So yes, if we we are going to program or engineer them for very specific purposes to optimize their performance, but we don't think those changes uh, at this point, based on everything we've seen, we don't think those changes are going to change the. The, the the I guess the microecology environment that that they're around these microbes will continue to interact and continue to be there, and we don't we also don't see these changes that we're making like adding the nitrogen fixation to it. Um, we don't see that as being uh, something that's going to uh, cause those microbes to to have an advantage where they overtake uh, all the other microbes or suddenly uh, become the only thing there. And again, you. It, I, you could you can envision people being worried about that, and it comes back to what we talked about earlier, which is you have to be transparent. Um, you have to do the experiments. You have to answer, and you have to be patient and answer these questions uh, as part of the process of getting new technologies accepted. And that's a really good point. I, you know, and here it just kind of occurred to me during this discussion. You know, thirty-five years in plant science, I've I've, I've invested. And I never really thought about this before. When you're talking about fixing nitrogen below the ground and you're fixing atmospheric nitrogen, how does it get there? Because you're talking about air that, I mean, I guess you could have a little diffusing into the soil, but how much of, how much of this is happening right at the top of the soil versus going down a little ways? Like, can you illuminate well, that we're a still, little bit Well, still, I mean, this me? gets into, you know, how effective can we, can we be? But I think we... We do, in fact, expect some of that fixing to go on in that top, you know, two to three centimeters of the soil where there actually is um, a good amount of air. And that's if you think about the soybean plants and the ribosomes, ribosomal uh, microbes that are on their roots, the root nodules that you have with soybeans and the same with peanuts. A lot of that is happening in that uh, in that top uh three, four, five centimeters of the soil. And there is enough air and there is enough, which is mostly nitrogen, there's enough there to, to produce it. But we also are looking to have those microbes colonize or be associated with the plant above ground as well. That gets back to this chassis and this chassis concept. And so if we can find endophytic uh, microbes and colonizing microbes that are actually not just on the roots, but also on the stem and on the plant itself, we think that's going to enhance um, the level and amount of nitrogen that can be fixed and then also at the same time transferred to the plant. So uh, I think soybeans are a good example that, that it's feasible. Uh, and what we need to do is be able to kind of replicate that, if you will, and try to uh, deliver that for uh, with a microbe that is can and can associate with that corn plant the same way that these nodules do with the soybean or peanuts. Yeah, I guess it has to be something that can um, also outcompete a pathogen or maybe even compete with a pathogen because we use so much um, antimicrobial in certain crops anyway that actually could remove the good stuff you're putting on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, it, that's, that's exactly right. And I think it's, uh, uh, fortunately, the uh, th there's been a lot of... Uh, a work a lot of work done on microbes um, over the last you know two three four decades you know bringing a, a select number of them you know to the field I think maybe you know the best known are probably the BTs um, and there have been a few others that have made it uh, as a fungicide and such and 
Uh, and even in those, even in those formulations, you actually have preservatives and things that are uh, antibacterial in a way, so you so that the, the product itself doesn't get overtaken or or get destroyed by a, a, a another bacteria. So it, it's absolutely uh, something you have to uh, pay attention to, and it's it's one of the things that you know makes these products. Uh, different than commercializing or formulating a, a chemical uh, solution. But it, they also have advantages, like we've said, which is they can persist on the plant. They can, they can develop a relationship with that plant. Um, and so you have a, a very different type of approach to solving the problem than you do by just hitting it with hitting the, the problem with a chemical. And do you anticipate any unusual regulatory barriers? Um, so it, it, it's like everything. I think it, it's, uh, ge- it depends on the geography. Um, I think in the U S it, it's pretty straightforward. There, there are re- regulatory path and, and things are, are set up already so that you can take an engineered microbe and, and there's a process to get it registered and, and get a label. So I think the, the U S is where we're focusing initially from a commercial perspective, where we would launch things because, because of that reason. Um, if you go to other uh, major areas such as uh, Brazil or Latin America, if you go over to uh, India and China and Asia, <coughs> you really don't, you're really uh, working with a blank piece of paper. In other words, they, they really haven't addressed positive or negative engineered microbes. And so they're, in a sense, they're waiting for somebody, I guess, to bring it to them. Somebody would bring it and then, then they'll, They'll put the regulations in place. They'll decide what questions they have to ask, what kind of package they want. So it's going to take longer. Uh, I think that's a a given. And then I think the fourth area is Europe. Um, And given given Europe's approach to GMO right now, um, you know, you you would have to believe that these uh, that these products would not be accepted there, even regardless of the benefit. So, at least in our lifetime, (laughs) and so. You have a, a, so you have a spectrum there of, uh, you know, going from the U.S. and then the, the Latin America and Asia and then Europe. And it's, uh, uh, and it's, it's, you know, each of those areas, uh, I think it's, it's not, it's, it's similar for any engineer, whether it's an engineered plant or uh, uh, an engineered microbe. I think there's a, a similarity of, in the spectrum there in terms of degree of difficulty. Yeah, so you probably would anticipate the same feat here at home with our national organic program, and um, maybe this. Do you think that this would be allowable under those standards? Um, as I understand it, as as written today, uh, no, they would not. Uh, the Omri and such, they you you really have, you have an IMO and Omri certifications and things. You you have to be able to show that it's. Um, it's not engineered, uh, whether they, but they also, I don't think they haven't really thought about it or it hasn't really been challenged from the standpoint of, of working with a microbe. So I think it's, um, I think you'd have to assume at this point that, uh, it would not be initially. And then you, I think if you could show the benefits and you could show sustainability, but also at the same time, answer a lot of these critical questions, <coughs> excuse me, about, um, regarding safety uh, both for the environment and for beneficial insects and things. If you had, if you demonstrate answers to those, I'd like to think, you know, I'd like to think that there's a, a path to get there. Uh, but I also think at the same time that people's definition and view of what's organic and what's not organic food is, is also evolving. And I think it's, it, that's going to change as well, I think, over the, the next uh, two or three decades. And uh, so we'll just have to, we'll have to see how it, how it all evolves and emerges. Yeah, I give it two or three years. I, I mean, in terms of its evolution, just the discussion around hydroponics and, you know, whether you could have um, organic cultivation without soil, you know, just those conversations were really important and, and really shaped and divided, you know, that, that community into different factions. And there are, do seem to be some folks who are amenable to the idea that if our bottom line is sustainability, we want the best technology to get us there. And, and those folks are the ones I adore because they're willing to, um, you know, still keep some things true, like, you know, lack of synthetic fertilizer or something like that. But 
would keep the door open for this. And, you know, maybe we're, that things will change like that. But even in the best case scenario, what kind of time frame are we looking for for deployment of your product? So I think uh, I use the the best example we have or the, the most likely example. So I think for for this to be a effective product with corn, um, it really needs to ideally it needs to be a, a seed treatment. So you if you think about how you would how would you actually get this microbe out there and what's the most effective and uh, way to do that, um, it would be as a as a seed treatment that you would put on that seed. So in the case of corn, uh, the reality is that that there's really only two players that have uh, the hybrid seed that's being used today. One is Bayer with their acquisition of Monsanto, and the other is Pioneer. So <laughs> anybody who wants to commercialize a seed treatment, your path to market really goes through those two players today. So when I talk about time frame, it probably realistically it'll take us uh, a couple of years to to get uh, a lead candidate that we actually have field trials and are starting to get excited about from the field data out there. So let's say that's in in you know best case two years, and then we run a year or so, year one to two years of trials on our side, and in the middle of that, we would also be handing you know trying to get both Bayer and Pioneer excited about putting it on as a seed treatment because the the reality is that that, you know, you go to market via the seed, the germplasm, and they're the owners of that germplasm. So you have to get they you have to get them to agree that they want to put this on their on their seed. So if you go through and add it up, you're probably realistically, you're probably out six, seven years uh, if you're if you're being honest about the time it takes for each of those steps to take place. And none of these big ag companies will commercialize something without at least two years of field trials and, and many times three years because they need to know and they need to be confident that what they tell the grower is that's what's going to happen. And uh, that's just a, a critical part of, of the basic ag <laughs> uh, process and, and uh, business today is you, you have to, you have to be able to deliver to these guys what you, you know, what you say is going to happen. And so that's why they, a lot of times products don't get to market quite as fast as we, we'd like to have them as, as the people who are producing them. But at the same time, the reason for that is that the growers need and really demand a level of testing and certainty before they're actually going to go and, and trust their crop, trust their business uh, to something new. Yeah, if you don't believe that, I got a tank of dicamba to sell. <laughs> it's a really great example of how you know that that there there maybe needed to be a little more something before that was released. But um, you know, and this is maybe more of an introspective question, and and I'm curious just how you would think about this because because this is what I'm asking myself here. Why did it take us so long to think about this? It seems like something that we should have figured out. 30 years ago. I think the, I mean, you know, I think from a timing perspective, uh, and, and this had a lot to do with us putting the joint venture together and, and getting this financed and everything is you, a lot of these, a lot of innovation, I think, is directly linked to the advancement of the technologies that make it happen. And so, yes, you, you could go back even five or 10 years, um, the, the state of synthetic biology and the tools and technologies that that scientists had at their disposal um, to you know first sequence um, the microorganisms and then have the um, the tools to analyze that data that the computer tools to analyze the data uh, and then the technologies to work with the DNA and work with the genes uh, both. Uh, making DNA and, and uh, uh, making DNA and inserting it in there and working with genes and having the tools to do all of that. If the, the synthetic biology field has advanced dramatically from eight years ago, and a lot of that is techno is actual equipment and technology advances. It's also know-how. And then there's other advances that have gone on with regard to CRISPR-Cas and other uh, just our, our basic understanding of the genomes and how to work with them 
So again, eight years ago, I don't think a lot of these tools were, were just in the early stages of being developed and applied to plants. I mean, Monsanto really pioneered that, if you will, and uh, led the way in terms of inserting things into plants. The technology today has advanced dramatically, as well as our understanding of microbes and the importance of microbes. So it's really, a lot of this to me is, is timing um, with regard to not just the ideas, but also the tools to make things a reality. Yeah, I guess we weren't even practically speaking of microbiomes in any meaningful way, you know, even 10 years ago. We published a paper in 2010 where we um, did a large-scale expression analysis of a strawberry plant, and we looked at all the genes that were there, and then I looked through all the uh, sequence that we threw away, and anything that had microbial or yeah. uh, you know insect origin or you know whatever. And what was really fun, yeah, I mean, we decided to go through the garbage can, right? And so here I am assembling the stuff from the garbage can, and we found. Um, we basically assembled in like the last figure of this paper, figure seven, what today would have been a nice microbiome analysis or like a metagenomic analysis of the, of the plant. Uh, we found everything from snail eggs to thrips to all these pathogens that were present, but never were pathogens in Florida. So there's something about the, um, it told us about, you know, it's there, but not becoming a problem. Really, really interesting stuff. And maybe was pioneering work that got um, undersold as figure nine in a nine figure paper, <laughs> but, but, um, but these are great ideas and I love what you guys are doing. So this is great. You can use microbes that associate with, with a plant that can fix nitrogen. It's a great idea to make, you know, the, the, the fertilizer it needs, but could you do other metabolic processes to deliver other compounds to the plant using a same approach? Yeah. It, it, yes. The, you know, the short answer, Kevin, is yes. And, and, and it's actually, we think, the, the real foundation of what we're working on, which is, yes, we're working on a solution for, the, the, for nitrogen fixation in, in these cereal crops. But even more important, we think, is we believe we're going to build a platform um, that using this approach can also be um, used for pest or insect issues, uh, disease, fungal issues. Um, and, and if you go back, go back to kind of the concept, if you, if you find these super chassis or these, these host microbes that can be engineered in the same way that you can put a payload in there for nitrogen fixation, you can also imagine putting enzyme or protein or peptides in that can address, uh, pest, uh, and insect problems, or that can address, uh, fungal and bacterial diseases, all of which are, are, you know, critical issues in, in agriculture today, many, almost all of which are being solved by chemicals. And so if you think about, a, a uh, the next couple of decades, if you look at the pressure that chemicals are coming under, um, today with, from a regulatory perspective, and even from a societal acceptance perspective, being able to have alternatives, being able to have another approach besides just a chemical to kill something or to, um, remove, you know, address a disease, that's a big deal. And so we think, we actually think the, this approach that we're taking, which is essentially programming or engineering microbes for a very specific purpose, and then optimizing that for performance that we believe will be equal to what the chemicals provide, that's a wonderful alternative to growers over the coming, you know, over the next one or two decades, as everybody looks for as many different solutions and as many different ways to address some of these critical problems. Well, that sounds really great. If, if people wanted to learn more about what you do at Join Bio, I looked at your... Um, at your website and I was looking under positions wanted like jobs <laughs> that you have open because <laughs> I think you hit the nail on the head here and I think it's I think it's a really good a really great place for uh for someone to think about careers because I love the interface of synthetic biology and agriculture um where would they look for more information other than say your website um, I think right now it is our website. I think that's, you know, I think we're, um, we're a, a small company. Um, we're about, you know, a year and a half old at this point. We have about 25 folks, but, 
you know, we, we have, we, we are still bringing up to speed a lot of these, uh, uh, external facing, uh, communications, but I, we, we are an exciting, you know, we have an exciting purpose and, and mission. We also, uh, have the advantage of, we've got the, the core microbial engineering is all in Boston, which is a, a in the housed with the Ginkgo folks there in, in the Boston area. So, which is a really dynamic place to be. And then we have our uh, plant and plant assay and field trial teams out here in Woodland, California. So we, we kind of offer people a, a bi-coastal, if you will, opportunity, depending on the expertise and, uh, uh, and the challenges of, of working on something that uh, hasn't been solved yet. It's, it's a whole new approach. And, and uh, uh, it comes with, you know, anytime you do something this new, there's a certain level of, of risk associated with it. But that's also what uh, I think motivates and, and gets people excited about coming to work every day. Yeah, totally cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Michael Milley from the Join Bio Company, um, engineering microbes that are going to do the work of um, nitrogen fixation, so producing on-site fertilizer on the plant. Um, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Kevin, and really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to another week of the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, share this with a friend. Um, um, think about people who you know who may be interested in these topics around food and farming and medicine where biotechnology is something that maybe they're not so sure of show them these really exciting positive benefits the things that can help people and the planet this is the way that we can change the environment so that solutions like dr Milley presented can find the field faster thank you very much for listening we'll talk to you again next week thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.